We've been fighting a long time. We have all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve with Susfidel, and coming at you with the famous Michael Graney of the Socialist Series fame to come back for a Graney project since it's the Christ the King uh, feast day was the other day. We decided to do a little PowerPoint slide presentation on that very topic. Michael, welcome back. Thank you. And, it's good uh, to be back. Although I noticed that your Lepanto flag is gone. I missed that. It's right there. It inspired me. It's right there. Oh, 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 I see. It's sort of semi-folded up. I expect to see it flying in, in brave array there. Yeah, well, I got no wind inside here. It'd be, that's the only thing I can do. I had so many people complain to me about that flag be covering the window because the for it to cover the window, it had to go down. And for it to be down, the, the cross was kind of this way. So everyone was coming up with all kinds. How dare you be blasphemous on doing that? Everyone, it's covering a window. Chill. <laughs> well, you shouldn't do that. I can't win for losing. You should do it my way. <laughs> now I'm waiting for somebody to get mad about the circle being in there, like the ring is over there on top of the altarpiece. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, you you can't please anybody. If you tried to please everybody, you please nobody. Yes, yes. So what, what inspired you to come up with this idea for us to do this? Well... For many years, I've been trying to reconcile. I had, when I first reverted, I really got into reading all the traditional Catholic materials and everything else. And they kept talking about if you want to see something very strange, read Catholic apocalyptic literature. Hmm. It gets bizarre. You'll have the Catholic monarch who's going to reign for a thousand years uh -huh. uh, after the great trial. And you're going to have the apocalypse, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but I think what really triggered my interest was we were at a conference uh, back maybe, oh, 15, 20 years ago in St. Louis. And we were talking about the act of social justice and, you know, uh, how liberal democracy was consistent with Catholic social teaching, L liberal democracy properly understood. Uh, you know, consistent with natural law and the sovereignty of the human person under God. And this fellow who turned out to be a judge just got outraged. And he was in the audience and he stood up and said, according to Quas Primus, the only legitimate form of government is a divine right monarchy. <laughs> and he stomped out of the room. And I thought, Huh? Because I had, you know, read the encyclicals of Leo the Thirteenth and Pius the Eleventh, and they were talking about democracy and, you know, genuine liberalism. And uh, if you, a number of the encyclicals of Leo the Thirteenth, especially, are very positive about the United States as it was intended 
to be uh, uh, to, to be formed. And the way it did operate within certain parameters, I mean, for the sake of the argument, ignoring slavery and the treatment of native peoples and that sort of thing. But basically the US constitution is a recognition of the sovereignty of the human person, which is what Catholic social teaching is all about. And I couldn't understand this comment, especially the guy's reaction and his rather rude departure during the middle of my talk. Uh, which tends to upset a speaker for some reason when somebody does that. Uh, and so I started looking into it and I came across the works of St. Robert Cardinal Bellarmine mm -hmm. and a number of others, including St. Thomas Aquinas on the governance of rulers and his treatise on law and uh, Pius IX and his constitution for the papal states, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Just uh, All those guys that people never read. <laughs> no, they don't. They, they skim through these documents hunting for something that they can twist into an agreement with what they want. Mm -hmm. And this is how, mostly how the socialists and the modernists get, get away with what they're doing. They'll find something, twist it, and exaggerate it all out of proportion so that there is some truth in what they say. Otherwise, no one would accept it. Mm -hmm. But it is so exaggerated and distorted and which is actually what heresy means. Heresy, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it comes from a Greek word meaning to pick out. Mm -hmm. And what a heretic does is pick out something that is true in context, but then exaggerates it and distorts it till it becomes the only thing and it becomes false. Uh, if, you, if God created everything, then everything is good by nature but with free will, we can turn it to evil. Yeah. So, and then I found out that Quas Primas was written, it was issued about the same time that Pius XI raised, uh, beatified Bellarmine. He had been languishing in obscurity for some time. So I looked up Bellarmine and I found out from a, most particularly from a book that turned out to have been written by, by a priest from my hometown, Evansville, Indiana, which I found out years later. Uh, it was uh, John Clement Rager's uh, The Political Philosophy of then Blessed Robert Bellarmine. And essentially, Bellarmine was an opponent of divine right. Uh, Sir Robert Filmer, who was the chief theologian of James I of England, who wrote the book Patriarcha, or the, what was it, the natural power of kings or something like that. Mm -hmm. Basic, the, the, the first part of which, and I mean the first part, the first couple of paragraphs are attacking Catholics for supporting democracy. You know, the sovereignty of the human person and against divine right of kings. Mm -hmm. Filmer was probably the most extreme of the divine right types. Hobbes was more divine right of the state, not the divine right of kings. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> which was more totalitarian. Yeah. At least with a divine right monarch, you can at least control him. Yeah. Or if not, do like the English did, chop off his head. I don't know. Well, which I do not advocate, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, no, regicide, not, not so much here. So then after looking at it and then carefully reading Quas Primas again, if you read it carefully, all of a sudden you realize this isn't in favor of a divine right monarchy. This is in favor of 
natural law sovereignty of the human person. Christ is king, but not in the temporal sense. Remember, when Christ was before Pilate, and Pilate said a very important question for a Roman governor, because anyone who was a king without being appointed or approved by the, by the Roman Senate was a rebel and a criminal. So that when Pilate said, are you a king? He was asking a very specific question. Are you a rebel against the authority of Rome with which Judea has a, is a treaty state? I mean, they were considered allies, although less and less as uh, the more extreme Jews decided that they didn't like the relationship. Well, one of the things about an alliance with Rome is you didn't get out of it. <laughs> you, you just didn't. <laughs> Once you were in, in the Roman Empire, you were in it. Uh, but then Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus's answer was something that if you're in court and you're the judge or the prosecuting attorney, you don't want this kind of answer. It's, well, that's your word for it. But my kingdom is not of this world. Whereupon Pilate got scared and said, I got to get rid of this case. His wife sends him a note. Don't have anything to do with this. But of course, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests are all egging the people on because they want to get rid of them. But that's another whole story. The bottom line here is that, yes, Christ is king, but not in the sense that we mean it, usually. It means something else, which we're about to get to. Now, from the very beginning there has been you know, widespread misunderstanding of what Pius XI meant by the reign of Christ the King, which a lot of people, as I said, seem to have been mistaking it for a divine, a mandate for a divine right monarchy, which is not the case because that goes directly contrary to Catholic social teaching, which is that every single human being has a natural sovereignty but as a political animal, of course, we delegate it to the polis, you know, the political entity, so that we can have an organized society to meet the needs that society is supposed to need, you know, provide the institutions and protect them so that we have the proper environment with which to grow in virtue. You know, this is all Aristotelian stuff. Of course, corrected and purified by Aquinas and then expanded on by Catholic social teaching, especially in the 19th and 20th century which most people didn't pay attention to, if they can sit there and say, oh, the church mandates a divine right monarchy and everything liberal or democratic is evil. No, that's not what it means. It, uh, in fact, Bellarmine was beatified about the time, shortly after the issuance of Quas Primus. Then a couple years later, I think it was 1930 that he was canonized. I mean, this is quick work here. And then a year later, he was named a doctor of the church. Now, you don't take the champion of democracy and at the same time advocate divine right monarchy. It just doesn't make sense. You have to correlate what the pope is doing, and especially with someone like Pius XI, who clearly had a plan that he was following. If you look at his encyclicals and his allocutions and everything, you know, his whole body of work, there was clearly 
a, a program he was following. And if you start picking things out and reinterpreting them according to what you want, you're going to get it wrong more often than not. So that it is no comes as no surprise that quas primas, which uses language that even a lot of Catholics misunderstand. I mean, a lot of Americans especially just have a knee-jerk reaction against king. On reign of Christ the king. Oh, you're combining politics and religion. Oh, the, you know, you're trying to establish a theocracy. No, that's not what it meant. Unfortunately, because of the circumstances that brought about Catholic social teaching, it was exactly the right term to use, but exactly the wrong term to sell it, if that makes sense. Because, and so, Quas Primus, the encyclical which established the, the Feast of Christ the King, has been almost egregiously misunderstood from the very beginning. And so, the, and this misunderstanding is, as I rather subtly hinted, or unsubtly actually, is, is linked to the misunderstanding of Catholic social teaching in general, but most especially the social doctrine of Pius XI in particular. Because you do have to realize Pius XI had something definite in mind. I mean, this guy was a world-class scholar. He had three doctorates. He was no dummy. And I think he read everything, every book that was ever written. I mean, what was it? Early in his pontificate, he had this unknown fellow by the name of Fulton Sheen come and have an audience with him. And it was clear from even the misunderstood, uh, how someone related the, the interview, clearly didn't understand what was going on. But what Pius XI, you know, asked Sheen and emphasized a great deal was, have you read Taparelli? You know, if you've seen the series on socialism, Monsignor Luigi Aloysius Taparelli was the fellow who first used the term social justice in a Catholic sense. And Fulton Sheen had never even heard of the guy and was honest enough to admit to the Pope that says, no, I've, I've never read anything by him. And Pius XI said, I want you to read and study every word. So clearly, even from the very first of his first year of his pontificate, and he had his eye on Sheen for some, for some reason, which I go into in the book I'm planning to write on Sheen one of these days, actually a couple of books. I think I have so many books to write. Now, if someone feels like giving me a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to write these books, I will accept it graciously. And I'll even be nice to you. John and John Morehouse, anybody? <laughs> I don't want much, do I? Just a life of ease and luxury so I can get my work done. Uh, but clearly, Pius XI had something in mind. And I can state this as my opinion because I can't prove it the, the way something should be proven scientifically. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't see any way that it could be wrong. The fact is that from the very beginning, the new adherence of the new things, you know, socialism, modernism, new age, they have been obsessed with the idea of the kingdom of God on earth. I mean, 
the phrase itself appears constantly through early socialist writings. The concept appears, you know, under different names. Even, you know, presumably atheist communists are trying to establish a perfect temporal society, which those who were the socialists who are religiously oriented would call the kingdom of God on earth. After, of course, redefining God, redefining society, redefining human nature to mat to, to, to fit their new democratic religion of socialism. And according to Dr. Julian Struba of Heidelberg University, who has done an incredible amount of work in this, I've read most of his papers in English. I think he does his own translations. Uh, I've tried to read some of his stuff in German, but the, the, the concepts are so difficult. And the research is so profound that with my, with my <laughs> comprehension of German, if you don't know what it says, you're not going to know what it says. Uh, if anybody cares, I do have these linked below in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, and his, his work is fascinating, but the thing that he noted that appears over and over and over and over is this obsession with the kingdom of God on earth. Even if they don't call it that, that's what it is. And the basic principle is that some weird distorted form of charity must replace justice so that everyone gets what he needs. Of course, as determined by whoever is in control, whether it's the, the headmaster of the village or the, the world dictator, Lord of the world. This is, if you're familiar with the, with the science fiction novels of Robert Hugh Benson, his most popular and least understood novel is Lord of the World from 1907. And people keep saying, oh, this is prophecy. This is, you know, what a magnificent, you know, analysis of what's going to happen to us. I said, no, it's something called satire. What Benson did in Lord of the World was take all the things that the socialists, the modernists, and the New Agers viewed as good and showed how they could bring about a hell on earth. When people started calling it a book of prophecy, he just about threw up his hands and said, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And so what he did, he tried to counter it. He called it a counterblast. He wrote another novel in 1911 called The Dawn of All, which is just as satiric. But in that one, what he does is take all the things that the secular humanists and the socialists and the modernists viewed as horrifyingly bad about organized religion and showed how it could bring about a virtual heaven on earth without being heaven on earth, not, not the kingdom of God on earth, but a well-ordered and even pleasant society which then people immediately touted as, oh, this is Benson's blueprint for the ideal society where a punny tore his hair out again. He says, no, I would hate living in that society. I am, this is, it's a satire. I'm showing how what the secular humanists view as evil about religion can bring about good and what the humanists, secular humanists view as good about what they're saying can bring about a hell on earth. Very clever satire. Evelyn Waugh understood it, but very few other people. I, of course, wrote a book about it, and you can... <laughs> uh, what, what, what a... Oh, yeah, So Much Generosity. I think it's on Amazon or something. Uh, buy lots of copies so I can retire young. 
But the whole Christmas I- is coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, makes a great Christmas gift. <laughs> oh, I, I did see something in the news and on Facebook the other day and on the internet news. The the people in Central Europe, you know, the the Chris Kindermarts, the Vinox Marts, the you know the, the Christmas markets, the fairs, they're in they're looking at a in big trouble because of course with the COVID nineteen thing and the new resurgence in Europe. There are some people who pretty much their whole income comes from these these fairs. And they're looking at total disaster now. I mean, when they say they're canceling Christmas, they, they just might mean it. But to return to our story here, uh, <clears throat> this whole idea behind the kingdom of God on earth and the new things, it's an example, or, or, or it, it's another uh Example isn't the right word, but I'll use it anyway, uh, of what Monsignor Ronald Knox called enthusiasm, which he wrote his magnum opus called, obviously, Enthusiasm, published in 1950. And he, desi- he, he defined enthusiasm as an excess of charity that causes disunity. I think it's even in the first paragraph of Enthusiasm, which is a much more entertaining book at 600 pages than you might imagine. You're you're reading along, hearing about, oh, this heresy did this, and these nutty people did that. And then he'll he'll say something, and you think, wait a minute, did he really say that? That's actually witty and funny. (laughs) It's not, this is a book about theology and history. It's not supposed to be funny. It's not supposed to be entertaining. Well, Knox was almost always entertaining. And he was a a satirist, too. I won't get into him. You could do a whole show on him. Uh, but the to return to our subject, of course, the idea of the kingdom of God on earth is to establish, you know, to replace all existing domestic, you know, familial, marriage and family, uh, civil, you know, the political order, and religious institutions with the democratic religion of socialism, which, of course, requires modernism as its theology to support it. And of course, its development ends up in the new age type of stuff. And this would create, in their opinion, an earthly paradise. Now, to quote Dr. Struba, now remember, he probably did his own translations, and it's maybe a little stiff, but he'll give you the right idea. I I really like what I've read of him, even though Typical German professor, he will go into much more detail than a lot of people like, but which I, as a CPA, I really like the detail because it gives you, you know, insights that you would have missed if you just read a summary. Certain things pop up that you wouldn't otherwise have considered. So this is Dr. Struba. says, there is abundant evidence that religion was not simply a tool that socialists and communists chose to employ at a certain moment. Not only were thousands mobilized by their religious ideas, but their socio-political theories, as well as their own reformist identities, were profoundly marked by religious concepts. Most people think that socialism rose in opposition to capitalism. Well, it gradually became opposed to capitalism. But if you look into the history of socialism, the first great socialists were capitalists. Frederick Ingalls was a capitalist. He was a mill owner. So was Robert Owen. The other socialists, uh, some of them started out fairly wealthy, like St. Simone and uh, Foyer. 
and Delamonet, but they ran through their money rather quickly and then sought rich patrons to finance them. It was only after the rich patrons stopped coming or never showed up at all that the socialists turned against the capitalists because they wouldn't give them money. Surprise, surprise. See, but socialism started as alternative religion, not in opposition to capitalism, even though capitalism brought about a lot of the conditions that the socialists were protesting. Very strange situation. But to continue with Dr. Struba, so in short, religion was integral to the formation of reformist identities and political programs. Now, by reformist, of course, he means the socialists and the modernists and the esotericists. He really gets into the craziness of what some of these people were developing with theosophy and ariosophy and all the other weird new religions that were popping up, including universal Catholicism of uh, Eliphas Levy, which was not his real name, by the way. Now, do you recall that statue that they put up, what was it, Oklahoma City, which most people assume that's satanic? No, no, no. That was Eliphas Levy's conception of the Baphomet, which was the idol of the Knights Templar, which was probably all made up, uh, and his symbol for universal Catholicism. Now, don't write in and say, universal Catholicism, isn't that redundant? Yes, it is, but we don't, I don't think that some of these people thought these things through too carefully. They knew what they wanted and went after it, whether or not it made sense. Uh, but to continue with Dr. Struba, he said, literally all French commentators perceived the communists, and he means also the socialists, as a decidedly religious movement. Now, this was in his analysis of, I, what was it, the July monarch? Yeah. Uh, it's an article that's included in a book, uh, Socialist Imaginations, Utopias, Myths, and the Masses, which is published in 2018. And it's Contested Christianities, Communism and Religion in July Monarchy France. I mean, July Monarchy France was the 1830s. Uh, and if France was bad, the United States was worse. I mean, if you want to see... Uh, the utopian movements, they're usually glossed over in our history books. And people, you know, greatly admire groups like the Shakers without looking too closely into what was it that the Shakers believed? Well, Mother Anne Lee, who was the founder of the Shakers, which was short for Shaking Quakers, which also sounds kind of redundant. There seems to be a lot of redundancy among these groups. Uh, Shake, 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 Shavara. <laughs> <laughs> Let your body line. <laughs> yeah, I saw the movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'll be too. Now, there's a satire for you, too, but we won't get into that. Uh, <laughs> I wish you hadn't said that because now I'm going to have that in my head. Uh, get back on track. Oh, yeah, Mother Ann Lee. Every time I hear That's Shakers, I immediately think that. It's, uh, I have, a, I have a, a problem about Things like that. <laughs> no, it was, if you take it as anything other than a, a satire or entertainment and try to build some kind of cosmology on, on something like Beetlejuice, you are in bad shape. <laughs> it's funny. Take it for what it is. That's it. I mean, got a few good lines, but uh, anyway, <laughs> Mother Ann Lee, Shaking Quakers, uh, she believed that 
the, the, the phrase is translated in the King James Version of the, of the Bible, man and woman, he made them. Meant that originally human beings were both male and female at the same time. There were a couple other utopian socialist groups that believed this as well. But uh, Mother Anne Lee, who apparently did not really care for marriage uh, or for bearing children or for anything that went along with it. Of course, she was kind of forced into it. So you can guess that there was a little bit of reaction there. I think she could have used a psychiatrist, but that's another issue. Uh, she believed that because of original sin, we were split into male and female, separating. And the only way to bring us back together so that we could reproduce asexually instead of that dirty, dirty sex would be to live a life of absolute purity and express yourself you know, in dancing. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that these shaker hymns that are still so popular, they're filled with code words. And people who are referred to as fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, uh, that did not mean that there was an actual family there. You were in dormitories, men and women had separate entrances, uh, everything was supposed to be celibate and so that you could purify yourselves, finally come together and then reproduce by yourself, asexually. Not quite what a cockroach does with uh, parthenogenesis, but you know, at least they manage it. All cockroaches are female, by the way, so the, the, it should be hen roaches, I think. Uh, we're getting a little bit further from our subject. But the United States was a virtual hotbed of this stuff. And it seemed especially conducive to the more enthusiastic manifestations of the new things. Knox refers to this a little bit in enthusiasm, but I don't think he understood the United States as well as people like Chesterton did, or even Leo XIII. I think it kind of made him nervous. I don't know why, I just do. Which is unusual because he was Fulton Sheen's teacher and had a great influence on him. But something about the United States turned him off. I don't know what it was, but and it really doesn't make any difference. Uh, but you had all kinds of movements, and to name just a few, you had the Oneida Creek. You had Jemima Wilkinson. Now, there was an interesting person. She was in a coma. They expected her to die. She woke up and claimed that her femininity had been taken away and she had been possessed by the universal friend and she should now be regarded as a man. This was in the 1830s. She was way ahead of her time. Way ahead of her time. Uh, New Harmony, Indiana, founded by Robert Owen. He, he purchased the property of Harmony from the, from the Rappites who actually made a go of socialism and were quite successful economically, but then they decided Southern Indiana wasn't for them and moved back to Pennsylvania. Robert Owen bought Harmony, named it, renamed it New Harmony, which is not too far from Evansville, Indiana, which I mentioned earlier, and proceeded to run it into the ground. Uh, it was a mess. Uh, he, sunk, he lost almost his whole fortune doing it. He was one of rich, England's richest men, but he was also a socialist, so I guess he decided to uh, uh, establish the so socialism for everybody. He had a three-tiered concept. Ordinary people who were, who were salvageable, then the intellectuals who were beyond hope, and at the top was Robert Owen to lead everybody. And on 
July 4th, 1826, he ticked off everybody in the United States by making his speech a declaration of mental independence in which he called for the abolition of marriage and family, except for his, the abolition of private property, except for his, and the abolition of organized religion, except for the one that he invented. Uh, possibly not by coincidence, Thomas Jefferson, who had looked with mild favor on Robert Owen when he thought he was still sane, died that day, as did John Adams. Uh, Fulton Sheen's uh, declaration of dependence was probably, in my opinion, based on Robert Owen's declaration of mental independence, which overturned every single thing that the Declaration of Independence of July 4th, 1776 stood for in favor of socialism. Then, of course, you had the Foyerists. Uh, Charles Foyer was a very interesting character. He was probably the most influential socialist in the United States. He believed that once socialism was established, uh, there would be complete sexual liberation. People would perform work for the sheer sexual pleasure of it. The oceans would turn to lemonade. The Sahara would become a green garden. And the North Pole would turn into a tropical paradise. I did not make any of that up. Is AOC related to him? <laughs> is who? Uh, AOC, Miss Cortez uh, from New York. <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, she has never said anything about the oceans turning to lemonade. <laughs> or the North Pole becoming a tropical paradise. <laughs> but then I don't know everything she's said. Uh, if any of her, if she or any of her adherents want to dispute this, I will be opening to listening about how she wants the oceans to turn to lemonade. Uh, then you had the Icarians. Uh, they established a, a socialist community in, I think it was Nebraska. They came from France. First, they tried it in Texas and almost all died of starvation because they realized that certain portions of Texas, particularly the ones they'd been sold and cheated out of, uh, were not favorable to the sort of agriculture that was practiced in France for some strange reason. Don't know why. Uh, they made a better go of it in Nebraska until they started fighting among each other, the older socialists and the younger socialists, each accusing the others of being capitalist or not capitalist enough. It was the weirdest lawsuit you ever saw. And then, of course, the Shakers, Mother Ann Lee. And then you had Andrew Jackson Davis, the seer of Poughkeepsie, the Fox sisters who started the spiritualist craze in the United States and who are later proved to be frauds. Uh, Thomas Lake Harris, who thought salvation could come from communism and by drinking his special medicinal wine. I am not making any of this up. Cyrus Reed Teed, who was knocked unconscious after experimenting with electricity, received the vision of a, of a spirit who told him he was the new Messiah, the, the new Messiah, uh, and the age of Aquarius had begun to dawn with his birth in 1839, and so he took the name Koresh and believed that we lived on the inside of a hollow earth. Uh, he died after a barroom fight in 1907. Uh, as I said, none of this is made up. Then there's Father Divine, who died in 1965. He claimed to be the avatar of God the Father. There, he still has some followers in New York State. Uh, Madame Blavatsky and her version of Theosophy, Ignatius Loyola Donnelly, who influenced Monsignor John A. Ryan as his political mentor. He believed that uh, there had been, he, he received uh, 
he was a socialist, a follower of Henry George. Of course, Father Henry George and Father McGlynn. Uh, Donnelly received spirit messages from, you know, about, you know, pre-deluge history from his Atlantean spirit guide. And he was a primary influence on uh, Madame Blavatsky. And as I said, he was a primary source and mentor of Monsignor John A. Ryan, whose concepts of social justice have influenced quite a number of people. I happen to disagree with them, but that's another thing altogether. We, we covered that in much greater depth in the series on socialism, which of course you should immediately view if you were into 30 hour binge watching. Now, in response to this, Fulton Sheen Although he did not go back far enough, in my opinion, he only went up back to about the beginning of the pontificate of Leo XIII. He missed that whole half century or so of what was going on before then. So I think he missed a few things, but not much. I think he had his, his finger on it. Uh, his two books, God and Intelligence and Modern Philosophy in Light of the Philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, just call it God and Intelligence. It came out in 1925. Introduction by G.K. Chesterton, and said that one of the good things about the Catholic Church, if not the best thing, was that it, it promoted reason. It was the sole remaining champion of reason in the world. When all the other religions and politics were going crazy, the Catholic Church still stands by reason. At least it did in 1925. Excuse me. And then Religion Without God in 1927, which was a sort of sequel to uh, God and intelligence. After that, uh, he got into it with Monsignor John A. Ryan and had to fight for his survival and switched his tactics. He got out of pure philosophy, which Monsignor John A. Ryan viewed as his turf, so he could mess up social justice and the Catholic social teaching his way. Uh, but anyway, in 1943, I think, Fulton Sheen commented on this whole idea of forming a heaven on earth, the kingdom of God on earth. He said, it is simply impossible to have millions of men in the world living according to their pagan principles and not produce the modern chaotic world in which we live. And of course, he was talking in the middle of World War II. Uh, this idea of a heaven here below is the surest way to make a hell upon earth. The universe thus becomes a multiplicity of self-centered little deities. And you don't know any of those, do you? Uh, the coat of arms of each is a big letter I. And when they talk, their eyes are always getting closer together. Uh, sometimes Fulton Sheen had a very good turn of phrase. And if you don't know where it came, if you know where it comes from, it's even more clever than it came off the first time. And then he says, in light of the foregoing explanation of man, the choice before the world is this. Will we build a new order on the totalitarian assumption that man is a tool of the state? And of course, he is obviously referring to Hitler and Mussolini. Uh, or will we retain the old order of the secularist culture of the last 200 years that man is only an economic animal? And right there, he's referring to socialism and modernism in the new age. Or... Will we build a new order on the Christian assumption that man is a creature made to the image and likeness of God, and therefore one for whom economics, politics, and society exist as a means to an eternal destiny beyond the historical perspective of planets, space, and time? Obviously, his way of explaining the kingdom of, excuse me, 
almost made a big mistake there. The reign of Christ the King, as he understood it. That's from a book that nobody ever heard of, Philosophies at War, published in 1943. I think it's available as a free download from somewhere because it fell into the public domain, along with Freedom Under God, which CESJ put together and republished, and then immediately got a call from a lawyer who said, I represent a group that has all the Fulton Sheen's copyrights. I order you to destroy all those books and then call me immediately. So I wrote him a letter explaining how this had entered the public domain January 1st, 1968, and citing copyright law at him and asking him by what right he claimed copyright of some ownership of something that Fulton Sheen never owned in the first place. And I called his office and he refused to come to the phone. I heard him in the distance, tell him I'm not here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, lawyers. I don't know just how to treat them. Point them to the truth, make it irrefutable, and they'll run away every time. <laughs> Nothing against good lawyers, just the usual lawyers. First thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. <laughs> you didn't hear me say that, especially since there's an attorney upstairs right now. Uh, but from the very beginning, the idea of Catholic social teaching has been to counter the new things of socialism, modernism, and the new age. I mean, we covered this in great depth, as I said, in the series on socialism. And Gregory XVI was the one who kicked it off. Uh, he sponsored the Thomist revival. Uh, even though credit is usually given, if you look in the encyclopedia, they usually say Leo XIII. No, it was Gregory XVI, the, one of the popes you love to hate. Uh, Gregory XVI also issued the first social encyclical, Mirare Vos, in 1832. He also encouraged the work of Monsignor Taparelli, who came up with the first Catholic usage of, social, of the term social justice, by which he meant something very specific, not just give everybody what they need or replace individual virtues. No, what he meant was and he specifically intended this to counter socialism, modernism, and new age you know, theories, was that all action must conform to natural law and Catholic doctrine. That, to Taparelli, was a principle of social justice. Now, we won't get into the whole thing about the difference between you know, social justice and individual justice and social virtue versus individual virtue, because basically it is what most people think of as social justice today is not social justice. It's just whitewashed, whitewashed socialism. Social justice involves restructuring our institutions to make individual virtue possible again. We'll, quit, we'll stop there because there's a whole video on that in the other series. Uh, Pius IX continued Gregory XVI's efforts. He issued encyclicals. He issued a syllabus of errors pointing out the problem. He called the first Vatican Council. And the First Vatican Council defined two key doctrines to counter socialism and modernism. He the primacy of the intellect. What you hold by faith cannot contradict reason and vice versa. Not that they can prove each other, but they enlighten and guide each other. Faith applies to that which is not manifestly true, meaning that which you cannot prove by reason. But that doesn't mean that reason and faith are in opposition. They go together. They're partners, not antagonists. It's faith and reason, not faith or reason. And he also defined papal infallibility, the council did. 
this was not to expand the doctrine. It was to limit it. Because remember, de Lamennais, who gave Felicite Robert de Lamennais, his theory of certitude was that the Pope speaks infallibly on all matters of reason and philosophy and theology. In fact, individual human beings do not have reason. All they have is faith. They have to accept what the Pope says completely on faith, not use reason at all, because reason resides only in the collective, which rather kicks the legs out from under Catholicism because Jesus came to save not the collective, but human beings. And so what the definition of the Council Fathers did when they defined, what, what the Council Fathers did when they defined papal infallibility was to limit this concept, this theory of certitude, meaning that when the Pope speaks infallibly, it's only under certain conditions and only in matters of faith and morals. Theology is a science. It's not a matter of faith or morals. So that, for example, I think it was Pope Honorius the first or the fourth, well, anyway, it was back in the sixth century. And he approved of a rather odd body, a rather odd theory called monothelitism. And I don't understand it, but it was almost immediately condemned by theologians who knew what they were talking about. It was the patriarch of Constantinople's attempt to bring the Nestorians and the Monophysites and the Orthodox all back together again. And it failed miserably because all it did was create another sect. Uh, but that was a human error on the part of the Pope. It was not, it did not call into question papal infallibility, which applies only to faith and morals, not to matters of theology or philosophy. So whatever you may think of what the Pope says, if he's speaking as a human being, we do have to stop and think whether it is really consistent with what the Catholic Church teaches. That no disparagement of the Pope, it's just that the Pope may speak infallibly, but we don't understand infallibly, for <laughs> which a lot of people forget. Now, to continue with what we were saying, however, Leo XIII, you know, at first continued Pius IX's program, uh, you know, issue encyclicals, try to teach people, issue condemnations of the new things. But then something happened which made it obvious that it wasn't working. Henry George and Father McGlynn in the United States really stirred up controversy by promoting socialism as authentic Catholic doctrine. And to this day, there are Catholics who believe that what Father McGlynn and Henry George were doing is authentic Catholic doctrine. Monsignor John A. Ryan was a Georgist. Quite a few people still are. And they wonder, gee, why is the Catholic Church so, you know, that, that, why don't they like Henry George? Well, there's a good reason for it, because what he was saying was directly contrary to Catholic doctrine. Plus, he was rather insulting to the Pope. He wrote uh, a letter, an open letter to the Pope explaining how the Pope was so dumb, he didn't understand Catholic teaching, whereas he, whereas Henry George did. Sure, you aren't even Catholic. Uh, but in light of that, what Leo XIII realized he had to do was promote 
a special program, not just doctrine, but a proactive program to counter, you know, the allure of socialism. And this was put into Rerum Novarum. And they also issued Testem Benevolencia Nostre in 1899 to counter a particular form of modernism that was rather misnamed Americanism through a bunch of, through a series of misunderstandings and mistranslations. It never should have been called Americanism, but that was the name any more than modernism should have been called modernism because it wasn't modern. Americanism wasn't American, even though that's what it got called. Uh, but we're not here to rehash that. Uh, Pius X, he too continued his, you know, the efforts. He condemned modernism, socialism, issued a syllabus of errors that most people say, oh, this is terrible. Uh, yeah, if you're a modernist or a socialist, it is. He promulgated a new code of canon law, uh, even though it wasn't completed during his pontificate. And he also uh, promulgated the oath against modernism, the first uh, clause of which is, I affirm that knowledge of God's existence and of the natural law in the, written in the hearts of all men may be known by the force and light of human reason alone, which was repeated, that was a, from the first Vatican Council, and it was repeated in Humani Generis. In other words, you can't go by faith alone, unless of course you're Martin Luther, but that's a different issue. Uh, Benedict XV, he got caught up with World War I, but he blamed World War I on modernism and socialism. And he did manage to give out a principle of social justice. Yes, do old things, meaning the true doctrine, the absolute truths of the church, but in new ways. And be prepared to adapt what you're doing. Don't just continue to do the same things, go through the same motions, because then you end up form without substance. What you need is to adapt your forms to contemporary conditions and needs, but retain the substance, which of course everybody forgets to do. They fall in love with the new forms. Uh, then we get in 1922, after Benedict XV's premature death during the, uh, the Spanish flu epidemic, or as a result of it, of course people say, well, he didn't really die of the flu. Yes, he did. When you have complications that brought on by a flu epidemic, you're dying of the flu. So it's like these people who say, the English who make the excuse that during the great famine in Ireland, well, very few people died of starvation. They, they died of starvation-related diseases. No, they died of starvation. But anyway, immediately upon his election, Pius XI proclaimed as his motto, the peace of Christ in the kingdom of Christ a direct frontal assault on the whole idea of the reign of, of the kingdom of God on earth. He was promulgating the reign of Christ the king. And in order to understand what Pius XI meant by the reign of Christ the king, which is the whole point of this video, you have to put his entire pontificate and his encyclicals, his allocutions in context. What was he trying to do? These weren't just random shots. He took almost a full year after his election before he issued his first encyclical, Ubi Arcano Dei Concilio, in which he announced his program. He put a lot of thought into what he was doing. And he clearly came up with 
on a, a completed agenda before he started on it. He wanted to make certain he was going to do it right. So, of course, everybody has misunderstood it. And Quas Primas was a key element in that. It was issued in 1925, immediately after he issued some other key encyclicals, such as Ubi Arcano, in which he announced his program, and uh, Studiorum Ducem, in which he said, we have to rely on the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas in order to re get rid of the modernists and the socialists. And there are a couple others in there that I can't remember right off the top, but those were the key ones. They were all integrated into a, a, a holistic program to counter the new things. That was, I, I can't say that, the, that Pius XI was obsessed with it, but he was determined to root it out. Unfortunately, as we learned in the, in the series on socialism, he left out one key element. How do you finance it? Which gave the capitalists and the socialists both an opening to say that what he was really talking about was capitalism or socialism, depending on what your orientation was. Now, in Ubi Arcano Dei Concilio, in which he announced his program, he said, there, not only did he, did he condemn modernism per se, but then the applications of modernism as they appeared throughout religious society and civil society, he said, there is a species of moral, legal, and social modernism, meaning socialism and new age garbage, which we condemn no less decidedly than we condemn theological modernism. He was going after the new things. And this whole concept of the kingdom of God on earth with which he was proposing the reign of Christ the King. And of course, instituted in 1925, the Feast of Christ the King to underscore this. And what you ended up with was the reign of Christ the King versus the kingdom of God on earth, to put it in adversarial terms. Uh, slight digression here. In my opinion, after reading you know, a number of biographies of G.K. Chesterton and some of his correspondence. And the big question that people kept asking, why did he wait until 1922 to become a Catholic? Well, in my opinion, it was because of Pius XI's declaration of war against modernism, socialism, and the New Age, which was what Chesterton had been struggling with ever since he decided to become a Christian. Was it the early 1900s? I'm not exactly sure when he, you know, I, I guess you could call it crossing the Tiber, maybe crossing the Thames or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but in my opinion, and there's no way I can prove this, but I interpret some of the things he said in some letters in this light, something about the election of Pius XI presented Chesterton with a dilemma. He could, plus some things that had been happening in, in the Church of England since they had officially adopted socialism and they had given over effective power over doctrine to parliament, if you can believe this. Uh, and I think he realized he was a very lazy man and he admitted it. He could no longer be lazy and remain in the Church of England. He had to become a Catholic. It's rather like Newman. Newman didn't particularly want to become a Catholic. He felt forced to become a Catholic if he wanted to be, remain a Christian. He could not remain a Christian and remain in the Church of England. This is not to say that other people couldn't, but he could not. 
and the same thing with Chesterton. I think he finally came to the sticking point with his understanding of Christianity, he could not remain in the Church of England, especially when you had a pope come out and flat out declare himself in favor of everything that Chesterton had been pushing for the past 20 or 30 years. Now, what to return to our subject, the kingdom of God on earth can probably best be summed up by what St. Simon, St. Simon, I can't pronounce French for, for the darn, <laughs> uh, the whole of society ought to strive toward the amelioration of the moral and physical existence of the poorest class. Society ought to organize itself in the way best adapted for attaining this end. We've seen that before in the series on socialism. In other words, everything must be toward temporal happiness. The kingdom of God on earth. St. Simon called his system the new Christianity, called for the abolition of the Catholic Church in favor of his new new Christianity, his new Christian church. And after his death, prophets appeared, and the church of St. Simon was established. It was getting wild. Uh, Frederick, blessed Frederick Ozanam, the guy who uh, established the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, that may actually, in a sense, be one of the least of the things he did. His first published writing was a pamphlet against the, Saint, the church of St. Simon. Uh, Chateaubriand, uh, praised him for his writing and for his analysis, but he said, you wasted your time because these are a bunch of nuts who aren't going to make any impression. Well, Chateaubriand was wrong. <laughs> the St. Simonian's influence continues to the present day, as does that of Fourier and Delamene and all, you know, the usual game, the usual suspects, as they said in Casablanca. Uh, now, the reign of Christ the King, however, as described in Quas Primas, which bears, it, it's a very short encyclical, but you have to read it carefully and know the context within which Pius XI was writing and what he was hoping to accomplish. The reign of Christ the King is threefold. One, it's over the hearts of men as the perfect embodiment of the natural law written in the hearts of all human beings. And that's in Quas Prima section 14. I'm, I'm not quoting exactly, but uh, although except for this one, part two, spiritual concerned with spiritual things and not temporal rule. That's in section paragraphs 15 to 16. I mean, Pius XI comes flat out and says, this is not a divine right monarchy here. He's not talking about temporal rule at all. Now, most important for the civil order is that although temporal rulers are not, they don't, it, it's not a religious rule but they must conform to natural law in order to for their rule to be legitimate as far as the reign of Christ the King is concerned. You don't have to be Christian. You don't even have to be Catholic. But you do have to conform to precepts of the natural law if you want to form a just society and establish and maintain the reign of Christ the King. It's not a religious thing, except in the next life. As Pius IX pointed out at one point, you know, the, the, the doctrine that there is no salvation outside the Catholic Church does not mean that you must be Catholic to be saved. Although, don't count on not being Catholic and letting that carry you forward. Uh, what he, the way Pius IX explains this, does this mean that God in his infinite mercy will condemn someone who 
knows nothing about the Catholic Church or only knows a distorted idea about it. Remember what Fulton Sheen said? He said, millions of people hate something that they think is the Catholic Church, but only a very few people actually hate the Catholic Church. And I think most of them are Catholics. But Pius IX said that God in his infinite mercy will not condemn anyone who is trying to lead the best life they know without true knowledge of the Catholic Church. But if you really want to do the best you can and you know that the Catholic Church exists and you understand what it's doing, you better be a Catholic. <laughs> Don't count on being saved if you're not. Especially if you know what it's about and saying, well, I'm going to go my own way anyway, like De Lamennais, invent your own religion. After claiming that the Pope is infallible in everything, except when he was condemning De Lamennais. Uh, so, and from Quas Primus, you can go almost straight to Quadragesimo Anno, where he starts to put the program in place. And of course, Divini Redemptoris is pretty much the second half of Quadragesimo Anno. You can't really separate any of the encyclicals of Pius XI because they're all one part of a, a complete body of work that is consistent. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, as is clear from Quadragesimo Anno, and this is my special area of interest, the reign of Christ the King is opposed to all forms of socialism as well as modernism. These people who think that you can have Catholic socialism or Christian socialism or religious socialism, no, you can't. And these people who have bent over backwards trying to twist words in the encyclicals or, you know, whitewash them or say, oh, that's only prudential matter to try to have socialism and Catholicism at the same time. No, you can't do it. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to realize that for instance, when, as Cardinal Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, said some things that made it sound as if he might be looking favorably upon socialism, which was immediately twisted into an endorsement of socialism, no, you have to read that whole essay in context. And then, of course, the subsequent passages, in which he makes it clear, no, he's not endorsing socialism. You're, you're engaging in wishful thinking. But what Pius XI said in Quadragesimo Anno, and I'll give you another extended quote here because he said it better than I could, says, we make this pronouncement, whether considered as a doctrine or an historical fact or a movement, socialism, if it remains truly socialism, cannot be reconciled with the teachings of the Catholic Church, and here's the key, because its concept of society itself is utterly foreign to Christian truth, meaning they shift sovereignty to the collective, an abstraction created by man, and take sovereignty away from the human person created by God. As Fulton Sheen pointed out, that flips everything upside down. You just made God the servant of man, and you put something created by man above man and thus above God. I mean, come on. But anyway, to continue with Pius XI, to explain it, it says, for according to Christian teaching, 
man endowed with a social nature is placed on this earth so that by leading a life in society and under an authority ordained of God, he may fully cultivate and develop all his faculties unto the praise and glory of his creator, and that by faithfully fulfilling the duties of his craft or other calling, he may obtain for himself temporal and at the same time eternal happiness. Now, that doesn't mean that only Christian authorities are to be obeyed. All authority, as long as it stays within the context of the natural law and is legitimately appointed, it remains legitimate. I mean, Cardinal Bellarmine went to great lengths to explain that just because a ruler is a pagan or a non-Christian does not mean you can declare war on him and con conquer his country. They, their rule is as legitimate as any Christian monarch as long as they stay within the context of natural law. Then to continue, socialism, on the other hand, wholly ignoring and indifferent to the sublime end of both man and society, in other words, taking away human sovereignty and giving it to society as a whole, affirms that human association has been instituted for the sake of material advantage alone. In other words, the kingdom of God on earth. If socialism, like all errors, contains some truth, which moreover the supreme pontiffs have never denied, it is based nevertheless on a theory of human society peculiar to itself and irreconcilable with true Christianity. Now, if you correlate that with what uh, is in Quas Primas and with what St. Simon said and with the First Vatican Council and all these other thinkers, you see what Pius XI was doing. He was showing how you can create a better society, but one that is conformable to the true end of man, not just some you know, material end. We, we, we are not made just to be fat, dumb, and happy here on earth. Otherwise, everything the socialist said would be true. We have a higher end. And that is what the reign of Christ the King is about, as opposed to the kingdom of God on earth. I mean, stop to think about it. The kingdom of God on earth? Well, then what's heaven for? We don't need heaven. We've got it here. Now, we're coming up to our conclusion. You know, that we're on the home stretch here. So you can breathe a sigh of relief there. Uh, religious socialism. Christian socialism are contradictory terms. No one can be at the same time a good Catholic and a true socialist. And it's not because your socialists hate Christians or Christians hate socialists. It's because the basic assumptions of the system are different. Collective sovereignty versus individual sovereignty. God the servant of man or man the servant of God. I mean, you can't reconcile these. It doesn't work. And to review my notes to make certain I didn't miss anything, of course, I missed most of everything. It, you can't, the, the reign of Christ the King is indirectly concerned with society only as an environment within which people can become virtuous and prepare themselves for their true end. Socialism, in whatever form or whatever you may even call it, is concerned solely with the, the environment within which we're supposed to become something, not be something, if that makes sense. Uh, so that if you take Catholic social teaching as a mandate for socialism, you are 
pretty much completely wrong. Now, a thought just popped into my head. In one of his essays, C.S. Lewis, you know, the great Anglican apologist, was contrasting, you know, what the secular humanist views as, you know, proper social activity and what the Christian views. And he says, up to a point, they will agree. But the secular humanist will do this as an end in itself, not because this provides the proper environment which in which people can become more fully human and prepare for their final end. And unfortunately, I cannot remember which book it's in. <laughs> I do that a lot. <laughs> Yesterday, I couldn't remember Jack Benny's name. I was trying to tell an anecdote, and I thought, let's see, Benny Goodman? No, Benny Green? Benny... Oh, no, Jack Benny. Okay. <laughs> we'll let you slide. Relevant. You can cut that out if you want. <laughs> we'll let you slide on that. <laughs> So, so that the reign of Christ the King, as opposed to the kingdom of God on earth, is and can only be, and this is our conclusion, a society in which everyone has access to the means of becoming virtuous in a manner that conforms to the precepts of natural law, and that means the power to exercise rights and of liberty, you know, of rights to life, liberty, and private property. If you get too far from that or admit something else as anything other than a bare expedient to get by until you can reestablish a more just society, you, you've gone off the deep end and you have not conformed to what the whole idea of the reign of Christ the King and what Pius XI meant in the encyclical Quas Primas and with the establishment of the feast of Christ the King. It doesn't mean just be nice. It means the restructuring of the entire social order to provide the environment so that you can develop and be nice. It doesn't mean just being nice, or it means becoming virtuous, more fully human, becoming with your true end, which for Christians, of course, is to be in God with heaven. And I hope the people that are being honest and don't believe that are very pleasantly surprised if they decide I'm gonna be Take Pascal's wager. I'll live as if there is an afterlife, even if though I don't believe it, and I'll be pleasantly surprised. And I hope everyone is. So, hope, no guarantee. There. Yes. <laughs> I'm not into universal salvation. Excuse me, I am. I, mean, I can't think of the proper term, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Michael, appreciate it as always, bud. Okay.